welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today we mark the birthday of Malcolm X. He was born on May 19th, a key leader of the militant black movement, the FBI, considered Malcolm X a threat. He was assassinated under suspicious circumstances on February 21st, 1965. Now, he was speaking at an engagement at Manhattan's Audubon Ballroom on February 21st, 1965, and three gunmen rushed Malcolm on stage. They shot him 15 times at close range. He was just 39 years old and was pronounced dead on arrival at New York Columbia Presbyterian uh, Hospital. Now, in November 2021, two of the three men convicted of murdering Malcolm, uh, Mr. Butler and Mr. Johnson, were exonerated by a New York district judge after a 22-month-long investigations. Uh, They were thrown out of the same courthouse where they were convicted in 1965. Now, we may never know what really happened um, and all of the forces behind the assassination of Malcolm X, but we do know that his words and his legacy continue to inspire us today. So today, you are going to be hearing a lot of uh, Malcolm's uh, voice um, in talking about a number of different uh, topics and also our guest will be um, historian Dr. Peniel Joseph. Uh, but we are going to be discussing and marking the birthday of Malcolm X within the context of today. And, uh, of course, pressing on the minds of so many of us, the recent uh, massacre, racist massacre by 18-year-old white supremacists in Buffalo, uh, New York, <laughs> taking the lives of 10 uh, black people, 13 uh, people were shot all together. Three were injured. Two of the injured uh, were uh, white people. Now, this uh, following a spate of, of similar uh, shootings uh, by white uh, supremacists, whether it was a church in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, the attack on two mosques in New Zealand against uh, Muslims there, the attack on the Jewish synagogue in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in Texas, the attack um, that left um, the majority of those killed were Latinos in, in that attack. And now we have the killings in Buffalo, New York. So we need to listen to Malcolm X. We need to heed the words of what he said to us. Um, and just I'd like to play you a clip, though, from ABC about a family member uh, grieving in Buffalo, New York, because we also today will be remembering and uplifting all of those impacted by that horrific shooting. Let us go to that clip right now. And you bear witness to her legacy, what she did as a mother. She raised a remarkable family. You will hear from her children about her sacrifice, about her dedication, her commitment as a loving, faithful wife. 
for 68 years to her husband, Garnell Garnell Whitfield Sr. This is so painful and emotional. This is so difficult. Thank you so much, Pastor Copeland, for your prayers, and we need them now more than ever. Absolutely. You know, um, a lot of us who are campaigners, we always say, don't mourn, organize, but there does come a time that we do have to mourn. And many of us are still mourning the assassination of Malcolm X, but we intend to carry on his work and to carry on his legacy. So stay with us throughout this hour as we mark the birthday of Malcolm X. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. The white man accused of killing 10 black people at a Buffalo supermarket is scheduled to appear in court today as authorities continue to investigate the possibility of hate crime or terrorism charges. 18-year-old Peyton Gendron live-streamed the attack from a helmet camera before surrendering to police outside the grocery store. He had posted hundreds of pages of writings to online discussion groups where he detailed his plans for the assault and his racist motivation before the killings. At an initial court appearance last week, Gendron's court-appointed lawyer entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf. New York Governor Kathy Hochul declared domestic terrorism to be public enemy number one while announcing moves to prevent future massacres. In her state, Linda Perry of Pacifica Station WBAI in New York reports. New York Governor Kathy Hochul called on the New York State Legislature to pass a package of bills to close gun loopholes and provide law enforcement with more tools. She's also launching a threat evaluation management program. And this is going to have multidisciplinary teams in our counties across the state These stakeholders need to be communicating and sharing information, so guess what? They can start to connect the dots. And that's what we did after 9-11, and that's what we're going to do now. Hochul also announced the creation of a domestic terrorism unit focusing on monitoring social media. Because there's a feeding frenzy going on in social media that hate just breeds more hate. 
The New York governor also called on New York State Attorney General Tish James to look into social media platforms which broadcast the deadly racist attack at the Buffalo supermarket. James says we are taking serious action to investigate these companies for their role in the attack. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. The House passed a domestic terrorism bill to devote more federal resources to preventing crimes like the racist mass shooting in Buffalo. The Wednesday night vote was along party lines, with one Republican, Illinois' Adam Kinzinger, voting in favor. Eileen Alfandari at Pacifica Station KPFA reports. South Carolina Democrat James Clyburn called it heartbreaking to be debating the domestic terrorism legislation just days after the massacre at a Buffalo, New York supermarket targeting black shoppers. We cannot continue to turn a blind eye to white supremacist vigilantes. The bill would set up three offices, one each in the Department of Homeland Security, the Justice Department, and the FBI. Those offices would be charged with monitoring, investigating, and prosecuting cases of domestic terrorism with a focus on the threat posed by white supremacists. Some progressive Democrats had opposed a previous version over civil liberties concerns, but the number two House Democrat, Steny Hoyer, said the legislation was tweaked and those concerns allayed. Still, Hina Shah the director of the ACLU National Security Project, said the impulse to do something should not result in creating domestic terrorism crimes using law enforcement powers that for decades have harmed the very communities needing protection. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. A Russian soldier facing war crimes charges in Ukraine testified today he was obeying orders of his superior when he shot a 62-year-old civilian man in the head and asked for the victim's widow for forgiveness. Katerina Shalapova said she saw her husband, Alexander, shot dead just outside their home and called for a life sentence for the 21-year-old soldier. She also said she wouldn't mind if he's exchanged as part of a possible swap for Ukraine. Ukrainian defenders at the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol. Chris Jones has more. It's the first case of a Russian soldier being put on trial for war crimes inside Ukraine. But Dr. Gayan Norijaninian from the Department of European Law at the National University of Kiev Moyler Academy says it won't be the last. There are at least two more that are ready, two more cases that are ready to go to court. Um, One of them relates to murder of a man and repeated rape of his wife. And another one is um, related to um, bombing and shelling of civilian objects and protected objects such as schools and hospitals. Chris Jones reporting. Russia says it's captured more than 1,700 soldiers from the Mariupol steel plant. And the Red Cross says it's registered hundreds of Ukrainian prisoners of war from Mariupol. The United Nations Secretary General says he's in intense contact with Russia and other countries to stop an escalating food shortage exacerbated by the war in Ukraine. Russia must permit the safe and secure export of grain stored in Ukrainian ports. Alternative transportation routes can be explored even if we know that by itself they will not be enough to solve the problem. And Russian food and fertilizers must have unrestricted access to world markets without indirect impediments. I have been in intense contact on this issue at the senior leadership level with the Russian Federation, Ukraine, Turkey, the United States, the European Union and several other key countries. 
I am hopeful, but there is still a long way to go. Guterres spoke at a hearing at the U.N. Security Council on food security Wednesday. He said Ukraine and Russia together produce about a third of the world's wheat and barley and half of its sunflower oil. The secretary general said the number of people facing severe food insecurity has doubled in just two years from 135 million to 276 million today. The U.S. Senate is poised to pass a $40 billion infusion of military and economic aid for Ukraine today. The president's signature is expected. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres issued a stark warning of environmental disaster and called for robust investment in renewable energy Wednesday after release of a new report from the World Meteorological Organization found record highs in greenhouse gas concentrations, ocean heat, sea level rise and ocean acidification last year. The global energy system is broken and bringing us ever closer to climate catastrophe. Fossil fuels are a dead end, environmentally and economically. We must end fossil fuel pollution and accelerate the renewable energy transition before we incinerate our only home. Time is running out. The State of the Climate Report for 2021 says the last seven years were the seven hottest on record. Guterres is calling for a shift away from government subsidies for fossil fuels that now total half a trillion dollars per year and government reforms to promote renewable energies to fast track solar and wind projects and expand access to raw materials used in renewable technology. The Israeli military says it's identified a soldier's rifle that may have killed Al Jazeera journalist, Palestinian-American Shireen Abu Akleh. But a military official says it cannot be certain unless Palestinians turn over the bullet for analysis. Palestinian authority says she was killed by Israeli fire and is refusing to hand over the bullet. It's demanding an independent investigation. I'm Christina Onased, reporting for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prestad, host of Sojourner Truth, a little horse today, but we are marking the birthday of Malcolm X. For those of you not familiar with him, he was six years old when his dad, a reverend, was killed by racists. His mom, Louise Little, was institutionalized at the Kalamazoo Mental Hospital from 1939 to 1963 as a result of the trauma. Uh, Malcolm X spent years in foster homes. He later spent time in prison where he turned to the Nation of Islam for personal strength. He dedicated his life to serving his people and all oppressed people. For several years, he remained a member of the Nation of Islam, organizing speaking tours and community service initiatives across the country. But he later uh, split with the nation in 1964. He went on to create the organization of Afro-American Unity and he, the Muslim Mosque Inc. in Harlem. Now, following his split with the nation, Malcolm traveled to Mecca. Uh, after that visit, um, he took on his um, Muslim name and he dropped his previous nationalism and became an internationalist. He f- and as I said, he founded the Organization of African Unity and he declared he was willing to work with anyone of whatever race who was willing to work for freedom. 
He spoke out about and fought against racism in the United States for its crimes against black and brown people. He was also a campaigner for unity among oppressed and impoverished communities around the world, including Asia, Africa, and Latin America. He advocated for a new social system based on equality, justice, and peace. But Malcolm frequently warned that the fight against racism and economic injustice is extremely difficult, affirming that it must be fought by any means necessary. The FBI saw Malcolm X as a threat. Why? Because they feared that he was a kind of black messiah, a person who had the ability to unite black people into a revolutionary force for change in the United States. They closely monitored Malcolm. They infiltrated his organization, including his security detail, and uh, many suspect and still believe that they were also implicated in the assassination of Malcolm. Now, before I want you to hear as much of, of Malcolm X as possible, and before welcoming our guests, who may also want to comment on this clip I'm about to play, this is a clip of Malcolm saying, well, just listen to it. Talk about the power of the Black vote. And who's born in jail? Let's go to that clip now. And when I speak, I don't speak as a Democrat or a Republican, nor an American. I speak as a victim of America's so-called democracy. You and I have never seen democracy. All we've seen is hypocrisy. When we open our eyes today and look around America, we see America not through the eyes of someone who has enjoyed the fruits of Americanism. We see America through the eyes of someone who has been the victim of Americanism. We don't see any American dream. We've experienced only the American nightmare. We haven't benefited from America's democracy. We've only suffered from America's hypocrisy. And the generation that's coming up now can see it and are not afraid to say it. If if you go to jail, so what? If you're black, you were born in jail. If you're black, you were born in jail. In the North as well as the South. Stop talking about the South. Long as you're south of the... Long as you south of the Canadian border, you're south. Don't call Governor Wallace a Dixie governor. Romney is a Dixie governor. Twenty-two million black victims of Americanism are waking up, and they're gaining a new political consciousness, becoming politically mature. And as they become, uh, develop this political maturity, they're able to see the recent trends in these uh, political elections. They see that the whites are so evenly divided that every time they vote, uh, the race is so close, they have to go back and count the votes all over again. And which means that any block, any minority that has a block of votes that stick together is in a strategic position. Either way you go, that's who gets it. You're you're in a position to determine who go to the White House and who stay in the doghouse. 
You're the one who has that power. You can keep Johnson in Washington, D.C., or you can send him back to his Texas cotton patch. You're the one who sent Kennedy to Washington. You're the one who put the present Democratic administration in Washington, D.C. The whites were evenly divided. It was the fact that you threw 80% of your votes behind the Democrats that put the Democrats in the White House. When you see this, you can see that the Negro vote is the key factor. And despite the fact that you are in a position to, to be the determining factor, what do you get out of it? The Democrats have been in Washington, D.C. only because of the Negro vote. They've been down there four years. And all other legislation they wanted to bring up, they've brought it up and gotten it out of the way, and now they bring up you. And now they bring up you. You put them first, and they put you last. Because you're a chump. All righty. Well, there you go. Uh, Malcolm X. And actually, a lot of what he said back then could apply to today. I'd like to welcome Dr. Piniel E. Joseph, who is the Barbara Jordan Chair in Political Values and Ethics at the LBJ School of Public Affairs and founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at the University of Texas at Houston. His book, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. was published by Basic Books in 20. 20. And if you don't have that book, for those of you who are listening, I suggest um, that you fix that situation. Uh, Dr. Joseph, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's always great to be with you. Yeah. And, you know, I know that you're on a schedule. You have to dash. So what I would just like you to do, uh, rather than just the usual uh, Q&A that I ordinarily would do, I just want you to talk, just to say what's on your mind now as we mark uh, today, including your thoughts on the legacy of Malcolm, the challenges that we're facing today, and the interrelationship between his legacy and actions that we might need to take, uh, Dr. Joseph. Well, you know, Ma- Malcolm X is, is you know, Black America's um, both prosecuting attorney, he's our prime minister, uh, he's our human rights uh, activist. Um, he's he's all those things in one. He's an intellectual. He's an organizer. He's a political activist. Um, but I think his criticism of white supremacy is so essential uh, now, today, but also his advocacy for radical Black uh, dignity uh, is essential for how we live today. Because on some levels, what Malcolm is able to do uh, during the course of his career, and then the legacy of Malcolm is to do dual things. Um, on the one hand, he offers this unvarnished criticism of the depth and the breadth of white supremacy in ways that made many people, including Black people, feel uncomfortable, but that pushed uh, not just the conversation, but action uh, towards um, revolutionary politics. So we could see Malcolm's influence on Dr. King in the latter-day Dr. King. The latter King who talks so robustly against imperialism is a radical critic of capitalism, is a critic of racism and white supremacy. And here I'm thinking of the Riverside speech in 1967, April 4th, 
that king can't exist without Malcolm X because the only person on the planet who was talking in those bold strokes was Malcolm X. And that's very, very important for all of us, you know. So Malcolm provides us a context to become Black people, to become African people, to become part of that diaspora. When white people were calling us Negroes and people of color, and we in turn were calling ourselves Negroes, even when we wanted to capitalize the end, Malcolm told us something was wrong with that. And in this idea of radical Black dignity, so on one level, Malcolm says that Dignity is ending worldwide supremacy, but he also says that dignity is essential for Black people to understand that they have a history and an origin story that is disconnected from the West, that is disconnected from Western imperialism, that we are African people, that we are uh, people who are dispersed throughout the world, the Caribbean, through Europe, through North America, but we are African people and that counts for something. That's very, very meaningful, right? So before Kwame Toure, Stokely Carmichael said that we're an African people, it's it's Malcolm X who's, who's telling us that, El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz, and who's going off to Africa in the Middle East in 1959 and then spends most of 1964 away from the United States. And he's building those diplomatic ties. Malcolm has an office at the United Nations. Malcolm knows by by name dozens and dozens of, of, of diplomats and world leaders. So it's important that Malcolm argued that even before citizenship, dignity was the prerequisite. Well, but by, by dignity, what Malcolm meant was that we had to understand that we were worthwhile and our lives mattered irrespective of external validation. And that's where he gets into a disagreement with King. Over time, they, they both agree that you need dignity and citizenship. But Malcolm, his insistence on dignity is because he believes that Black life matters intrinsically and you don't need a passport or you don't need a stamp by white folks or whoever to tell you that you matter. And I think that's hugely, that's that's a revolutionary concept, right? So if we think about freedom beyond limits, it's not about getting citizenship from the United States or any country. It's understanding that your dignity matters and is so essential that just the fact of you being born is enough for you to count uh, in the world. And that's what Malcolm uh, does for us. And I think now more than ever, because you played the clip where he's talking about voting and strategic voting, but we can see as we are pushing towards this authoritarian state, this anti-democratic state, that you know voting strategically doesn't count if they prevent you from voting, right? Right. Yeah. So this idea of dignity counts more and more because the citizenship aspect that Dr. King fought so uh, much for and Ella Baker and, and so many different other people, um, that's being stripped from all of us, uh, especially Black people and people of color, uh, right before our very eyes. And it's not just the 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 assault on voting rights it's it's the assault on teaching black history it's the assault on reproductive rights it's the police brutality and the criminal justice system and the mass incarceration the economic inequality so in a way we need to rely on dignity more than ever uh, even as we should also be uh, simultaneously advocating for citizenship and malcolm is the person who teaches us all that and i would argue who teaches 
Dr. King that as well. Right. Thank you for that. And, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Pinel Joseph, if you can spare us a few more minutes, I really would love to play one of the clips uh, from Malcolm before you have to go um, about why you're discriminated against and how the government has failed us and then get some uh, final comments from you. Would that be okay? Oh, sure. All righty. Well, let's go uh, to that uh, next clip uh, right now. That's uh, track eight. Whether you are Whether you are a Christian or a Muslim or a nationalist, we all have the same problem. They don't hang you because you're a Baptist. They hang you because you're black. They don't attack me because I'm a Muslim. They attack me because I'm black. They attack all of us for the same reason. All of us catch hell from the same enemy. We're all in the same bag, in the same boat. We suffer political oppression, economic exploitation, and social degradation. All of them from the same enemy. The government has failed us. You can't deny that. Anytime you live in the 20th century and you walking around here singing, we shall overcome, the government has failed. This is part of what's wrong with you. You do too much singing. Today it's time to stop singing and start swinging. You can't sing up on freedom, but you can swing up on some freedom. So this government has failed us. The government itself has failed us. And the white liberals who have been posing as our friends have failed us. And once we see that all these other sources to which we've turned have failed, we stop turning to them and turn to ourselves. We need a self-help program, a do-it-yourself philosophy, a do-it-right-now philosophy. Uh, It's already too late philosophy. This is what you and I need to get with. And the only time, the only way we're going to uh, solve our problem is with a self-help program. Before we can get a self-help program started, we have to have a self-help philosophy. Black nationalism is a self-help philosophy. What's so good about it, you can stay right in the church where you are and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. You can stay in any kind of civic organization that you belong to and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. You can be an atheist and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. This is a philosophy that eliminates the necessity for division and argument. Because if you're black, you should be thinking black. And if you're black and you're not thinking black at this late date, well, I'm sorry for you. Once you change your philosophy, you change your thought pattern. Once you change your thought pattern, you change your, your attitude. Once you change your attitude, it changes your behavior pattern. And then you go on into some action. As long as you got a sit-down philosophy, you'll have a sit-down thought pattern. And as long as you think that old sit-down thought, you'll be uh, in some kind of sit-down everywhere. It's not so good to refer to what you're going to do as a sit-in. Then right there, castrates you. Right there, it brings you down. What, what goes with it? What Think of the image of a, someone sitting. An old woman can sit. An old man can sit. A chump can sit. A coward can sit. Anything can sit. 
Well, you and I have been sitting long enough, and it's time today for us to start doing some standing and some fighting to back that up. Well, um, as Dr. Peniel Joseph, and listening to that, that clip, you can just hear also him outlining the differences between his approach and the approach of Martin Luther King. Although the two of them did, you know, uh, did come together uh, certainly before, uh, Malcolm, uh, died. But this whole thing about they hate you, uh, cause you're black, uh, we do know now that they also hate because you're Muslim. They hate because you're Jewish. I mean, you know, all of those things we have seen from these uh, mass attacks that have happened. But the clip that I played at the top of the hour of that family member just sobbing, um, there's so many uh, people, Black people that uh, I spoke to uh, after the Buffalo uh, killing. And people were in deep grief. Some people were crying. They felt like a sitting duck. Um, Dr. Gerald Horn talked about every time you leave your house, it's almost like you're playing Russian roulette because it, it seems as though whether you're in church, whether you're in the supermarket, whether you're walking for, um, you know, soda and, and some Skittles, um, you know, you could just be shot down um, either as a result of institutionalized racism and illegality in law enforcement or by these um, racists that are not lone wolves. They are part of a movement. All righty. This is Margaret Prescott. We're taking a very uh, late uh, station break uh, today and in which we'll be honoring the Buffalo victims with a mourning song. And when we return for the rest of the hour, we'll be hearing the words of Malcolm X. Don't go away. Stay with us. We'll be right back. a morning song, Lubu, sung in the language of Dida um, from uh, West Africa. And it is from the album Now Freaky. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on this and anything you may want to say also about that last clip that you heard. And, and final thoughts before I know you have to dash, Dr. Pinelle Joseph. Well, certainly. I think that when Malcolm is saying that they are oppressing you because you're black, um, he's he's right on. And I think it's also uh, connected to these panoramic systems of oppression that impact all of us uh, connected to identity. You know, so what Kimberly Crenshaw is called intersectional uh, uh, intersectional identity. Um, I do think that what Gerald Horn is referring to is is absolutely correct. And I think that um, we are living in a time period, uh, uh, Margaret, which is much closer to uh, the period of reconstruction 
than than the 1950s and 60s. And part of that is because uh, we were able to um, demand uh, transformational uh, policy uh, interventions through uh, the movement for Black Lives Matter, through through Black feminist movements, Black radical grassroots movements, uh, just as we did during the 19th century. Uh, but when you look at the 30-year period of Reconstruction, roughly 1865 to the White Riot in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898, which displaces a duly elected uh, interracial government. And Wilmington goes from being predominantly Black to, to being less than 8 7% now. Um, what you see during that period is, is a tale of two cities. You see Fisk University is founded in 1866 in Nashville, Tennessee, the same year Fisk is founded in Nashville, and that's the that educates W.E.B. Du Bois and so many other Black luminaries, um, the Klan is founded in Pulaski, Tennessee. And 1866 is also the year of violent uh, white supremacist uh, pogroms in Memphis and New Orleans, right? So you go back and forth, you go back and forth, and we are being attacked uh, because we're Black, um, but it's also connected to this idea of offering racial privilege and within that caste system to people who are not black. So it's not just to white people, but it's people who are not black are, are oscillating between those poles of either blackness, the, the faces at the bottom of the well, like Derek Bell said, or, or whiteness. And so what we, what we're seeing now with the assaults and the xenophobia and the Islamophobia uh, and the queer phobia are people being uh, marginalized, attacked, uh, discriminated against, punished, and demonized. But other groups um, sort of trying to figure out how to, you know, how, how can they, how can they survive within that caste system? And most of the time, people aren't going to be so courageous enough to say, "Well, we're sort of all in this together, and stand in solidarity with one another." Uh, that's the dream. That's the dream of a beloved community um, or the human rights movement Malcolm uh, talked about and led. But in reality, people are are fearful. Right. So I think one of the things that has not been discussed about the shooting in Buffalo, uh, east side of Buffalo, the Maston neighborhood of Buffalo, predominantly historically black. You know, why has that community been segregated? Um, why is that top supermarket the only place where folks in that community can get fresh fruit and vegetables. It's a food desert without that. And now that this white supremacist, this domestic terrorist has, has murdered, uh, and, and, and killed 10 black people, injured three others, that supermarket is closed, which adds more layers of, of oppression and inequality to the situation. Um, so, you know, one of the things that Malcolm says in that speech, and there's another speech where he's, talking to uh, Dr. Kenneth Clark, and he tells Dr. Kenneth Clark in 1963, and, and of course, Dr. Clark is the person who, who, who came up with the doll test and the author of The Dark Ghetto, uh, and two days ago was the 68th anniversary of the Brown decision that said that public school education should be racially integrated in 1954. What Malcolm tells Dr. Clark is, you can't have Black people protesting, and this is 1963, for citizenship because the reconstruction amendments provided citizenship. So why are black people protesting now? And the reconstruction amendments that Malcolm's referring to, the 13th amendment, the 14th amendment, the 15th amendment, the end of racial slavery, except 
in terms of punishment, which which produces mass incarceration, as we've seen in Ava DuVernay's The 13th, but also Ruthie Gilmore's Golden Gulag and Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, Brian Stevenson, uh, Just Mercy. The 14th Amendment is birthright citizenship. So, so it's only because of Black people in the Civil War that everybody who's just born in the United States from any background, you're automatically a citizen. And then the 15th Amendment is Black male suffrage, but that precedent is going to provide white female suffrage by 1920, and then Black women unmasked don't get suffrage until 1965, right? And so Malcolm always taught us that, you know, we were not living in this robust, thriving democracy in the way in which people rhetorically said or assumed, because there would be no need for a civil rights movement if the Reconstruction Amendments had been passed. And remember, Biden just passed an anti-lynching bill that's been, you know, a century in the making that could never been that 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 was never passed before over a century uh, in in the making, right? So what we're seeing in Buffalo is the continuation of of these these violent assaults, but these violent assaults that first started during Reconstruction against Black citizenship and dignity always come simultaneously with racist public policy, very specifically anti-Black racist public policy, racist uh, legal decisions, um, and also a racist cultural milieu and story that justifies it. So the replacement theory is not new. People have been talking about replacement theory uh, since uh, really the dawn of the Republic, but certainly especially since 1865, because whites were very afraid of labor competition with black people. So it was this idea that that the Republican Party was going to replace uh, the existing uh, native born uh, whites or and even even white immigrants who come in from Ireland and other people, they imbibe the elixir and get drunk off of white supremacy as well. So it's important for us. And I think what Malcolm shows us very, very specifically is in his critique of American exceptionalism, because American exceptionalism then and now is based on two big lies. The first lie is this lie of black dehumanization, because that's the only way you can justify antebellum racial slavery and the sexual assault, the rape, uh, the murder, the super exploitation of black people who are human beings is by saying they're not. So that's the first lie. The second lie, and you see this throughout the whole lost cause narrative, is that the first lie never happened, right? So the entire lost cause after the Civil War is this 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 narrative that the South were heroic good people. Because the racist uh, Margaret, they're always saying they're good people and they're the ones being victimized. So they say that black men were predators. They were rapists. They had to save white women. Uh, the Republican Party was corrupt. They did election fraud. So they had to violently redeem the South, right? That's what we're up against. The, 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 the reason why we honor Malcolm X is that in the 1950s and 60s, Malcolm realized this and and told us the good news, right? You know, the Bible talks about the good news. Malcolm spread the good news too, like John the Baptist. Malcolm is an evangelical, and it's not evangelical for Black nationalism, it's for Black human rights, but with a critique of white supremacy, right? But we are in the third reconstruction, and this is really, really a very, very dangerous period because what we've said during this third reconstruction through the movement for Black Lives Matter is this idea of really displacing 
that ideology of white supremacy that has kept people down. And that's connecting to neoliberalism. It connects to racial capitalism. It connects to uh, deep uh, 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 sexism and deep misogyny. It connects panoramically to intersectional injustice. And what we're seeing is the white backlash. That's why the 1619 Project, Malcolm had his own 1619 Project because he was telling us a new origin story, right? We get the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, and we get these these Pulitzer Prize winning lessons, but then you get you get massive white mob violence against the truth, just the narrative, let alone this Buffalo shooter, right? So we're we're facing white supremacy from the top down. Rick DeSantis, Trump, uh, Republican governor, Republican parties, right? But we're also facing bottom up white supremacy, which is the chat boards, which is which is uh, 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 social media, which is Twitch, which is attacking and assaulting um, Black people. Yes, Charleston and Buffalo, but in between Charleston and Buffalo, the Tree of Life Synagogue with the anti-Semitism, uh, Orlando and LGBTQIA brothers and sisters, um, the, the Atlanta and the, the, the Asian uh, massage parlor massacre, and then, of course, El Paso and the assaults on Latinx. So, if, if white supremacy has always been an existential threat to American democracy and to all people. And Malcolm is one of the people who taught us that. But so many people sit on the sidelines and think that they're somehow going to escape that wrath. But they're coming for you as well, because inherently it's this anti-human philosophy. The leading edge of it is anti-Black, of course, but it takes and impacts other groups, uh, including Jews, including Muslims including people who are queer, including people who are Latinx uh, and Asian American, Pacific Islander, indigenous, and so many. Right. Right. Well, (laughs) yes, on on that note, um, we're sorry that you will have to go, uh, Dr. Joseph, but we will uh, spend the rest of the hour listening to the words of Malcolm X. But we really appreciate your work and for you really breaking all of that down um, with such clarity. And again, um, Dr. Piniel Joseph, his latest book, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Uh, Dr. Joseph, both of them really important leaders for me personally and for so many of us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Margaret. And I wanted to say that I've got a new book coming out September 6th, The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century, which gives us a context for these three periods of reconstruction and really highlights the role of, of Black women in trying to transform Uh, what we mean by justice, citizenship, and democracy in the United States and globally. Well, really looking forward to that. And you'll have to come back um, when the book is out and, and, and talk with us about it. Thank you so very much. And congrats, by the way, on the new book. Thank Thank you. you. I just want you to hear as much of the words of Malcolm X as possible. And actually, I think what we're going to do now um, for our board up is we could go uh, straight to uh, track seven, uh, which is 322. If we could go to that clip right now, that would be great. Prepared to go into the United Nations at this point and ask that charges be brought against the United States for its treatment of American Negroes. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Please. I think you're right in my opinion. The audience will have to be quiet. <laughs> uh, yes, the 
as I pointed out when I was in doing my traveling, that nations look, African nations and Asian nations and Latin American nations look very hypocritical when they stand up in the United Nations condemning the racist practices of South Africa and that which is practiced by Portugal and Angola and saying nothing in the UN about the racist practices uh, that are, that are uh, manifest every day against Negroes in this society. Even in South Africa, those Africans uh, aren't faced with bayonets and aren't faced with police dogs. I, I would be not a man. If I was in a position to bring it in front of the United Nations and didn't do so, I wouldn't be a man. Malcolm, do you intend to lead the charge uh, in the United Nations? Well, I, I find that to say you're going to lead something creates a lot of hostility, division, jealousy, and envy. Uh, I hope to, to work with any group of leaders or any group of organizations to do whatever is necessary to see that this problem is brought before the United Nations. Have you had any commitment from any nations in Africa to support your I move? I would rather not say at this time, but one thing I found in travels, all of them look at, upon us as their long-lost brother. You realize the implication is that you have had such commitments when you say... This is like your that. interpretation of what I said. Uh, 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 one thing that I found in all of my travels was that uh, all of the Africans, not only the Africans, but the Asians and the Muslims, look upon us as their long-lost brothers. And America had actually tricked many of them uh, into uh, a hands-off policy by giving them the impression that she was honestly trying to do something to solve the problem. My argument over there was designed to prove that it is impossible for the United States government to solve the race problem. It's impossible. Malcolm, on your trip abroad, you said you sent a feeling of great brotherhood that conceivably you would be working toward integration in this country now. At least this is what your reporter to have said. Have you any comment on it? I don't think that I ever uh, mentioned anything about working toward integration. They haven't even got integration right here in New York City. You have worse integration problems in the North than they have in the South. So if it doesn't work, in, if, if you can't bring about integration in New York City as international, cosmopolitan, up-to-date as it's supposed to be, you will never get integration anywhere else in the country. Are you prepared to work with some of the leaders of the other civil rights organizations? Certainly. Certainly. We will work with any uh, groups, organizations, or leaders in any way, as long as it's genuinely designed to get results. Does your new beard have any religious significance? No, not particularly, but I do think that you'll find black people uh, in America as they strive to throw off the shackles of, of uh, mental colonialism will also probably reflect a, uh, an effort to, show, to, to uh, throw off the shackles of uh, cultural colonialism. And they may begin to reflect desires of their own with standards of their own. Uh, Malcolm... The more controversial remarks was uh, a call for black people to get rifles and form rifle clubs sometime back. Do you still favor that uh, for self-defense? I, I don't see why that should be controversial. I think that if white people found themselves the victim of the same kind of brutality that black people in this country face... There's only one way to be a first-class citizen. There's only one way to be independent. There's only one way to be free. It's not something that someone gives to you. It's something that you take. Nobody can give you independence. Nobody can give you freedom. Nobody can give you equality or justice or anything. If you're a man, you take it. If you can't take it, you don't deserve it. Nobody can give it to you.
So if you and I want freedom, we want independence, if we want respect, if we want recognition, we obey the law, we be peaceful, but at the same time, at any moment that you and I are involved in any kind of action that is legal, that is in accord with our civil rights, in accord with the courts of this land, in accord with the Constitution, when all of these things are on our side, and we still can't get it, it's because we aren't on our own side. We yet don't realize the real price necessary to pay to see that these things are in force where we're concerned. And until we realize this, they won't be in force where we're concerned. We have to let the people in Mississippi, as well as Mississippi, New York, and elsewhere know that freedom comes to us either by ballots or by bullets. That's the only way freedom is gotten. Freedom is gotten by ballots or bullets. These are the only two avenues, the only two roads, the only two methods, the only two means, either ballots or bullets. And when you know that, yes, when you know it, when you know it, then you are careful how you use the word freedom. As long as we're going to sing up on, as long as you think we're going to sing up on some, you come in and sing. I watch you. Those of you who are singing, are you also willing to do some swinging with some of these? No, this is true. They've always said that I'm anti-white. I'm for anybody who's for freedom. I'm for anybody who's for justice. I'm for anybody who's for equality. I'm not for anybody who tells me to sit around and wait for mine. I'm not for anybody who tells me to turn the other cheek when a cracker is busting up my jaws. I'm not for anybody. I'm not for anybody who tells black people to be nonviolent while nobody is telling white people to be nonviolent. on a plane between Algiers and Geneva, uh, and it just happened that two other Americans were sitting in the two seats next to me, and none of us knew each other, and the other two were white, one the male, the other a female, and after we had been flying along for about 40 minutes, the lady, she says, could I ask you a personal question? I said, yes. She said, well, she had been looking at my briefcase, and she said, well, what does that X? She says, uh, what kind of last name could you have that begins with X? So I said, that's it, X. And she said, well, what does the M stand for? I said, Malcolm. So she was quiet for about 10 minutes. And, and she turned to me and she says, you're not Malcolm X. <laughs> you see, I had, we had been riding along in a nice conversation like three human beings, you know, no hostility and no animosity, just human. And uh, she couldn't take this. She said, well, you're not who I was looking for, you know? And, uh, and she ended up telling me that she was looking for horns and all that. And 
and for someone who was out to kill all white people, as if all white people could be killed. This was her general attitude, and this attitude had been given her, uh, this image had been given her by the press. So, before I get involved in anything nowadays, I have to straighten out my own position. And, which is clear, I am not a racist in any form whatsoever. There's a large, increasing number of dark-skinned people uh, swelling the, pop the dark population of France and Britain, and it's, it's giving them a great deal of cause for worry. No effort has been made to unite the Afro-American community or the American Negro community with the uh, West Indian community, and then those two communities with the African community, and those communities with the Asian community. This has never been done. And this breaks many power, many interests in this country. Many people in this country who want to see us the minority and who don't want to see us taking too militant or too uncompromising a stand are absolutely against the successful uh, regrouping or organizing of any faction in this country whose thought and whose thinking pattern is international rather than national. Uh, the late, great Malcolm X. And we uh, spent the hour uh, marking his birthday today, May 19th. Um, we are out of time, so we're going to have to go. Uh, Malcolm uh, means so much to me and so and to so many of us. And I just remember uh, standing in line in that freezing rain uh, to go see his body after he was assassinated. But I also remember the Malcolm X who, when I got tired on a march, uh, told me and my sister to get on up, to get up. And I remember that moment each time I get tired. Um, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. Please stay tuned for Democracy Now! Sojourner Truth. We'll be back on there tomorrow for our weekly roundtable. You won't want to miss that. Um, thank you for listening. You all stay well and safe.